0: Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me, as always, is Aton.
1: Hey, Carl. That was a good introduction. I could tell over the last couple of weeks you were feeling insecure about your introduction abilities. I practiced in
0: the mirror a few times, and <laughs> I'm good you to visualized? go. visualized? <laughs> Very good.
1: Good work. Good job.
0: Well, I can... I was going to try another sweaty segue and it, it wasn't going to work. I was going to do something about how Jeffrey Katzenberg visualized his future and didn't come to pass. And <laughs> What I'm talking about, of course, is our final, uh, maybe final quippy quibby, which is oh, that Quibby's now dead. RIP Quibby
1: 2020 to 2020. He was a quibby, quibby, quibby. He <laughs> was pretty bad. We'll talk about it.
0: I mean, let's talk about it. Like it's apparently it just they unanimously made the decision that if, uh with investors that Quibi needs to shut down. What was it that Katzenberg said on the the call where he laid everyone off that they need to listen to a DreamWorks song?
1: Yeah, a song from Trolls that is like <laughs> you know when you're down, <laughs> get back up. <laughs> yeah, they they he told them to visualize their futures are successful employees of other companies.
0: You know from my hit movie Troll that you don't stop the feeling, but unfortunately Meg and I today have come to the decision that we need to stop this feeling.
1: It was it was so interesting. (laughs) It felt it felt so quick, you know? Like I feel like we were just talking about that they were exploring if they should get, you know, sell themselves to someone like two weeks ago and they just they went to decide to actually announce it's
0: what we said when we were talking about whether they're an acquisition target no their content's useless like who wants to buy this like it's completely ah oh, yeah i'm interested to see what happens if this limbo content if it actually gets resold anywhere like i don't think anybody's dying to see this content on netflix or anywhere else i think it's just gonna kind of lapse i don't know what their contracts were
1: yeah, and reading between the lines, it seems like it was very investor-driven. It does. Like they mentioned a couple of times in the call that they wanted to give back as much as possible. So it sounds like other people starting getting nervous before them.
0: Well, what? they spent $2 billion on content. They probably have another billion in the hole for tech and salaries and everything else, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not even that. Let's say... Three billion. So there's four billion left of the investment. If I was an investor right now, I'd want my four
1: billion taken out and whatever career what I lost. There seems to be a lot of reasons, of course, why this failed. You know, pandemic probably didn't help, but it seems uh, we tweeted that we used the, the phrase "the movie pass off" to talk about something that wasn't successful or that it was doomed from the start or whatever. And I think we need to update that to the Quibi off. Because it's it's one of those rare instances where there seems to be a lot of, uh, you know, maybe not criticism, but doubts since the beginning from a lot of different people saying, like, why would this work? Why would this work? Why would this work? And it actually not working pretty quickly.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm still more of a fan of MoviePass, though, because Quibi gave me 30 minutes of actual entertainment and then hours and hours of gossip entertainment. but. MoviePass gave me all that gossip, plus like corporate intrigue. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, VCs ultimately bankrolled me seeing a thousand dollars worth of movies for ninety-nine dollars or whatever I paid for a year. Like Quibi Quibi didn't give me the
1: the gift that MoviePass did. Right, and this this shouldn't become a comparison, but even even MoviePass, (laughs) I think most people most people think about MoviePass when they drop the price down to like nine. Nine dollars a month, but before yeah. they were bought by Helios and Matheson. Mathison, 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 Mathison. I don't know. Mathison. They yeah. were like 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 twenty dollars a month, and it was a you know maybe they didn't it, they weren't that successful, but they weren't losing that much money, and it drove to places like AMC to create basically their version of a movie pass subscription, and at least if if you heard their pitch, you were like okay, I can see that working, the, their pitch, of course, being we're going to have so much volume that we're going to be have information yeah. of what people are watching and when and with who and and whatever, and we're going to be able to either produce movies or partner with people or whatever, right? Again, they the what you have to believe there was the volume that they were going to get for $9 a month, which was flawed, but I guess the idea made sense. For Quivi it didn't. There's an entire episode about MoviePass I want to
0: do one day just... MoviePass is the ultimate, like, weird scaling platform play idea. Like, they they thought they were Uber. They thought they could float on VC money until they had enough data, enough users, and enough market power to drive actual movie decision-making and purchasing. But the difference is, there's a magic moment when self-driving cars exist, where Uber's labor costs go to zero, and it's the most profitable thing ever at the current price. There's not that moment with MoviePass when they're buying tickets that are fifteen dollars multiple times a month on a ten dollar subscription play. <laughs> there's there's no way the numbers
1: ever work out.
0: It was that. fantastic. It was. Amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I remember. It
1: was, <laughs> it was beautiful. Wait, waking up before Ariella woke up because we, at that time, remember you need to have two personal ones and you needed uh-huh. to check in at the movies with both cell phones. So I would take her cell phone and mine. <laughs> Drive to the movie theater, check in, get the movie tickets for like that night, and then come back before she woke up or whatever, just because I, I didn't want to take her cell phone from her. And it was so worth it. We went to the movies, yeah, five, six times a, a, a month for $9. I'm not a
0: big buy tickets for movies ahead of time person, unless it's a very specific event. I didn't buy tickets ahead of time to see like Solo or, or Rogue One or anything. Literally, what I did was... I'd go to work in the morning. I would usually come home at lunch on Fridays and work from home the rest of the day. So on my way home during lunch, I'd stop at the Alamo Drafthouse near my house. I would buy a ticket with movie Pass. It had to be a same day check-in. Right. I would go home and then right as soon as I got off work, I'd go
1: back. But I'd have a ticket
0: to a sold-out showing. It was brilliant.
1: I, I do wonder how the, the numbers looked for like smaller films. Yeah. If smaller films just got more money because of some, all the movie pass, people they were like, well, it's free to go to the movies. There, There is anecdotal
0: evidence that, um, like, 824 had a bit of a bump that year. I mean, it was also the year after they won Best Picture, so I think it's kind of hard to extricate mm-hmm. that. But, yeah, absolutely. I think independent film made more money that year than they were going to for a while in theaters.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Quibi... We hardly knew, yeah. Any last words to uh, say goodbye to Quivi, Carl?
0: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> may, may, I don't. <laughs> may it rest in peace. Yeah,
0: may it rest in pieces. Uh, that's nice. There you go. That's good. So, uh, on the front of content people actually do want to pay for, I want to switch over to an interesting gossip item that came out this week, which was that Apple was trying to purchase no time to die from mgm so that's the uh now twice pushed back bond movie is the first major thing to be pushed in the spring from from uh covid scheduling worldwide mm-hmm. interesting news item what do you think about it
1: confusion i think was probably the first because we've talked about how each streaming service thinks of themselves differently and i was like do they want to have it in instead of in the movies Do they want to buy the right yeah. post movies Do they want to have a, you know, a VOD and like rent exclusive? It was literally confusion. It was my brain saying, this is going to confusing. What does it actually mean? I'm confused as well.
0: I, I don't think the purchase is really out of character for Apple. Apple seems to be saving up and spending very specifically on certain titles. Uh, they had On the Rocks, the Coppola film, come out last weekend. I'm gonna watch it this weekend. I haven't had the chance to watch it, but uh, this would be kind of an event-driven thing. Like they recently, they have the rights to all the Peanuts cartoons, so like all the Peanuts are free actually for the holiday specials right now on Apple TV Plus. Like even if you don't have a an account, uh, they're making interesting purchases and people have estimated that MGM would need to pull in i think 600 to break even on this one and that's a lot of money and i don't think apple's going to pay 600 million for the rights there yeah no yeah, i i think it, it, the last i saw the reporting was that the deal had pretty much fallen through and that was the yeah, absolutely made sense as far as the ultimate outcome
1: yeah when i yeah. When I think of Apple making buying decisions, I keep going back to... How much cash do they have now? Like a ridiculous amount?
0: Yeah, they have some insane the same...
1: Apple cash on hand. Let's see the Google machine. 192 billion. As of Q1 2020. So... 120. They could... 192. Almost 200. So they could buy... MGM outright pretty easily. A couple of years ago they could have bought Netflix outright pretty easily. Netflix now is at like 220, so even with the op charge or whatever, it's of course out of their range. Yeah, their market cap's two fifteen, yeah. Yeah, when I when I when I see them making purchasing decisions, it's it feels like they are going for the trade of the whatever we buy has to be good to fit our brand. But it just has to be good enough to give us this extra percent that we want on, on like retention for hardware and making sure people stay with us rather than they investing in this stream to become something important for the revenues, which I, I get the, this is not what they do. They don't want to become a movie producer themselves. But on the other side is I don't know. Seems like they,
0: they have to decide. Yeah. I think they have to decide. Uh I just went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole just now to find the answer to a very specific question I wanted to know, which is whether or not Columbia was involved at all in No Time to Die. Because have you seen you've seen Casino Royale, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Do you remember all the insane product placement in Casino Royale?
1: Uh I remember a Sony yeah xperia phone or yeah, one there's of like, those weird there's like phones. three
0: xperia phones there's like another like walkman phone mm-hmm. there's uh there's multiple vios and the best thing oh, is right. at, at the hotel he goes to at the like sort of the beginning of the film he goes into a like a closet where there's security camera footage and everything and he's getting it and this is 2006 So this is, like, high-tech. He goes over to a wall, and he pushes a button on a Blu-ray drive (laughs) that ejects, and he has a Blu-ray of high-def security cam footage. (laughs) It's the most ridiculous thing. Anyway, sadly, we're not going to get a lot of insane Sony product placement on No Time to Die because Universal's handling it internationally, and United Artists is handling it domestically. So... Even if Apple did buy it, we weren't gonna have that weird incongruity. I love insane product placement. Get Out's another one that gets me too
1: because there's so much like Windows Phone stuff on there. (laughs) Talking about so bad. I know this is a tangent, (laughs) but talking product placement and talking Ryan Johnson, which we're talking about today, I'm sure you saw what he said about Apple products after doing Knives Out. Did you hear? Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Ryan Johnson came out and said that apparently Apple has this thing with product placement in movies where villains can't be using apple products so it's it, in knives out there is a hood it uh they had to really figure out how to not tip to the audience who was uh, we i don't want to spoil it but who was the villain of the movie which was interesting because now when you have when you have a doubt you can just see if they're using an iphone or a macbook pro if they are they are probably not the bad guy
0: that's really... I, I hadn't heard that part, actually. I
1: thought you are talking about, like, some
0: camera stuff or
1: something. Oh, no. This is not as cinematic. But now I, I, I really realize, like, every movie I watch where I see an iPhone, I tell her, like, oh, this is not the bad guy. And she's like, we're watching a kid's movie. I'm like, well, just in case, this person is not the bad guy. What do you do with anti antiheroes, though? Like, can antiheroes use iPhones? Maybe they need someone like us to decide to build those policies. Build a strategy. Mm.
0: They can use a MacBook they can use a MacBook Pro, but it's virtualizing Windows and parallels. <laughs>
1: yes. Or it has to be a space a space gray It's <laughs> a dark tone.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Uh yeah, interesting. Just to close this out, they didn't buy it. We don't know where <laughs> they it didn't went. Buy it. Okay, good. I think we said Yeah, no, n- nobody bought it. MGM, I think, decided
0: to hold on to it. But I imagine MGM's hurting for cash right now.
1: Yeah. We didn't we say also like two weeks ago that Netflix should buy MGM? <laughs>
0: Yeah, they they should yeah. totally buy MGM. I, somebody should buy MGM. It's like one of the few legacy libraries out there that's
1: not gobbled up. Right. Talking about uh, content production decisions, um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about animation, Western animation. And two weeks ago, we talked about Netflix and kind of their content strategy and the news that they want to create six animated movies a year. Well, this week, they premiere... A movie, an animated movie called Over the Moon. And there were a couple of interesting things about this one. The first one, at least for me, is that the director is Glenn King, who's one of the like very famous animators from Walt Disney. He left a couple of years ago. He was at Google very briefly doing some VR stuff. But he's known because he is the animator that, for example, so when it was drawn animator at Disney. Each animator had a character that they did everything for. And he did Ariel in The Little Mermaid. He did The Beast. He did Aladdin. He did Pocahontas, Tarzan. And he was also very involved, even though it wasn't hand-drawn, on Rapunzel in Tangled. So this is the Ritual debut, which is interesting on one side. The other side, we talk about how (laughs) Netflix going for these movies never makes a cultural impact and nobody knows about them. We are two co-hosts of a media podcast. We talk about Netflix content decisions two weeks ago. We talk about Netflix making six animated movies last week. And we didn't know this movie existed. And it literally premiered on Friday. <laughs> so even if it's successful, and I've seen it on Twitter, a couple of people talking about it. It's like, where, is it, where did it come from? Is it going to make any dent in the world outside of people watching it from, for a weekend? In a weekend? I'm, I'm, I want to watch it, but... Honestly,
0: I didn't know about it until we were like outlining what this episode was going to be today. So, yeah, I'm sure there's some snarky like snarky tweet from Netflix marketing about like how cool it is and how like special of a film it is. And then it got buried next to like two more ads for the prom. So,
1: (laughs) yeah, apparently, apparently the key song is very good go watch the trailer looks interesting. Perfect. Those those were the news. That was
0: the news for we today.
1: terrible at moving between topics
0: this week, so let's
1: move into the topics. I mean, the there's no topic. good segue here.
0: Like, a lot of the times we choose topics based off of the week and what's in the news. This is actually a continuation from episode six of this podcast, which was the very first episode in our Star Wars sequel trilogy trilogy. <laughs> the series, the so podcast yes in that episode we talked about the force awakens and kind of the beginning of lucasfilm and star wars under disney after the acquisition in 2012 and we ended on a high note force awakens is one of the the highest grossing films of all time Uh, there were it was it did so well that they were really excited about what their chances are would be with a theme park With galaxy's edge which was announced at d23 we talked about kind of the corporate structure and the power structure in place at lucasfilm and and where it was uh, with kathleen kennedy heading up the the franchise and then bringing in jj abrams to kind of craft it and move it forward and we talked about what disney gets out of it which is just a lot of goodwill and a lot of um, interesting synergy opportunities between parks movies and products So, that was all great. And now it's going to start going
1: sour in this episode. Spoiler alert. But yes, if you haven't listened to episode 6, you should go listen. I think it's a very interesting backstory, and we're going to kick off kind of right where we left, which is Force Awakens comes out December 2015. Disney is riding high. And kind of... uh, The next thing that they wanted to do is... They announced that they were going to release these trilogy movies two years apart. So, 2015, 2017, and 2019. But they also announced that they were going to release these, like, side stories. I don't don't know if they have a name for these other movies. Yeah,
0: they were called The Star Wars Stories. So, like, the official title is, like, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and Solo, A Star Wars Story.
1: Oh, okay, perfect. Which were basically movies that were gonna expand on the key stories or just take place around them or at least in the same universe, but they weren't gonna be directly connected to the trilogies. You could watch them as a standalone movie. And the the first movie that was released after The First Awakens in 2016 was Rogue One. Yes. So we go well, we go through Rogue
0: One, we're gonna talk about The Last Jedi, and then we're gonna talk about Solo. Uh, This episode actually goes through these three films, three director firings, and then the development of Galaxy's Edge. So it's a bit more predicated on the movie timeline because it's kind of what was going on in Star Wars from 2014 to 2018, roughly. So that's what we're going to cover today. It's honestly going to be a lot less of a of a chore to get through than our last Star Wars episode because that was so much of us laying the groundwork for who these people are, what this universe is, and why it matters. And this is just like let's kind of gossip about what went wrong with some really big movies.
1: Before getting to details, let's start in Rogue One. Carl, yes, thoughts on Rogue One? It's fine, like no like, just fine, average
0: yeah i i don't know i get why people like it it's not a bad film i'm not really criticizing it just star wars has so much power because of its mythology and like the grandness of it and just like the sweeping space opera of it all like that's literally what it is it's a space opera and rogue one is is like one foot out of that and one foot into like a war film but it doesn't quite thread the needle into actually working as a its own like powerful independent thing for me i don't get much out of it
1: scare of school i really like rogue one i should say just yes, for those who don't know rogue one takes place right before episode four and it tells the story of this uh group of resistant fighters that steal the plans for the death star so you know when the uh, episode 4 starts r2d2 has this message from leia that says help us obi-wan kenobi you are our only hope and it includes kind of the plans for the death star and this is basically the story of how who did it how they did it and it's fantastic i think i agree with you that it's definitely a step out but not completely that they are not jumping into the waters but there's just something about it that we're going to talk about The Last Jedi, and one one of the things that I really like about The Last Jedi is that it kind of pushes back a little bit about the whole universe being around, uh, kind of just gravitating around the Jedi and these yeah. two families and the Sith, and Row 1, I th- at least in my perspective, is the first step, maybe with the Clone Wars, with the animated series, that really takes a step to the side and says, we're going to yeah. tell you everything else that's happening in this universe, Look at all of these other people. Uh, It even talks about the bureaucracy on the Empire and how they need to build this thing and how they have to go Mm -hmm. through it and who the side characters are that make things happen before these wizards with magic lights that can move rocks kind of appear and save the day. And that's something that I I really appreciate it. I I think there's also something about... we, We don't have to get too much into the plot, but it's one of the only movies where, you know people are just not good or just bad yeah like the characters are both bad and good and there are people in the resistance that kill people and you're like why are they doing that and there is someone that is helping the empire because they're threatening their family and you're like oh okay yeah that makes sense and it's just not as unidimensional as oh is Ray gonna go to the sea no yeah yeah
0: that's fair like i i do find that that point interesting i find the stuff about the exploitation of the planet Jeddah with like the Kuiper crystals and stuff Mm -hmm. interesting i i think a lot of my problem with the film rests like squarely on Jin urso who has like a character i'm like i have zero investment in i can see that what is his name cassian cassian andor okay yeah i was i was like is it cassian andor it's cassian cassian Andor. that's why mm-hmm. i was they like, tripped up <laughs> i think diego lula is great in it which is why he got a disney plus show Two dick k2so is great mm-hmm. forrest whitaker's doing some weird stuff like i i enjoy a lot of it. oh also ben Mendelssohn. oh my god i love ben mendelsohn in that film like he is terrific that is like my favorite star wars costume <laughs> it's just like ultimately i don't really care about jen or so i love mads mickelson but galen's not much either It is visually striking, but I never felt like really engaged by the action any more than I would play like playing a video game. But even then, I'd be playing a video game. Uh, But ultimately, like it's fine, it's fine. Like I, I don't hate it.
1: Like I don't mind watching it. I'm gonna continue to bat for Rogue One. That's fine. Go watch it. I think you have a lot of supporters. (laughs) Yeah, I think for me also, I think what you said about the characters makes sense. Cassian Andor for me, it's history, and of course, I'm biased because uh, I should say. Diego Luna playing Cassian had a big impact in Mexico, mm-hmm. anything in general in Latin American culture. Uh, Diego Luna is a very famous actor in the U.S. now. He was in this, he's acted with, like, Tom Hanks, and people know him from me también, but he's now kind of a big actor. And Okay, when would you, would you say he's acting with Tom Hanks, are you talking about The Terminal? <laughs> yes, and I like The Terminal, so we can get into
0: that another day. Oh my god. Yeah, the no, the terminal's trash, but it's fun. <laughs> it's so great. Okay. Victor Navorski. He's the worst character that. He's he's a creep who's trying to get with Zoe Saldana by like seducing her with, with like, Star Trek. With a Klingon like they get married because he flashes a Klingon salute at her. It's awful to hate <laughs> Oh, it's great. It's so good.
1: I love him. I love him. I love everything I can't about you just Victor the terminal. <laughs> Yes. Well, last week you explained how Studio Ghibli was connected to Star Wars. So now let me reference the terminal in a Star Wars episode. That's fine. You can reference the terminal like <laughs> Anyway. This had a big impact in Mexico because it's one of the there are stories of like kids taking their grandparents to see the movie and the grandparents maybe it's one story this grandfather crying because he sees representation and he sees Diego Luna speaking with a very strong Mexican accent on screen because he was like, well, this is Star Wars. I can be from anywhere I want. I don't have to change my accent at all. And it being reference, you know, this representation matters because it helps people visualize everything that they can do and that they are no less than anybody else. So, of course, I'm, I'm biased with that with Diego Luna. But in terms of also the, the war story, the last thing I would say is the Battle of Scarif, including the battle kind of outside the planet, it's yeah. probably my favorite 30-minute or 40-minute cut of a Star Wars movie in the last 10 years. If you told me, you, you have to rewatch half an hour of one movie, but it has to be like straight, it'll probably be Rogue One. If it's a whole movie, it's probably The Last Jedi. But that last battle of Rogue One is fantastic. It's yeah. great. And Darth Vader's scene at the end of Rogue One, it's probably up there with the best minute or two minute of Star Wars ever. It's fine. It's cool. Come on. It's good. I see you kind of thinking about it. The, mu- the music, cool sequence, the red lightsaber turning on. It's great.
0: I think ultimately my problem with Rogue One is it's... It is, like, kind of the Disneyfication of... it. It's a war movie, but it's, like, it doesn't go far enough. It kills everyone.
1: What do you mean it doesn't go far? Okay, okay.
0: death isn't, like... The yeah, stakes he... are finally a little bit... Yeah, but make it, like, a little dirtier. It all feels too clean and just sanitized, and the Darth Vader stuff could be a lot longer and worse, and I don't know. I don't want, like, saving Private Ryan with Star Wars. I don't want that, but, like... I I don't know. I just... I feel, like, a little
1: detached because... It's not as cool as it it should be. They gave one minute of fun. Like, they caved fans for one minute there at the end. And it was great. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't
0: have even put Vader in it if I was making it. Okay, let's talk about this movie. And I think I am kind of biased here, and you'll understand why. Okay, so it was in development for about a decade before the Disney purchase. And... In 2014, Disney made an announcement. This was actually right after they had made the Force Awakens announcement, and before they had announced anything else. They announced that there would be uh, anthology films with Star Wars, and that's kind of sparked everyone's imagination, because it's like, cool, You can do, are you going to do genre films? You're going to actually experiment with things beyond just the main franchise. And it was announced that they were going to do this pretty quickly after that. They announced that Gareth Edwards, fresh off of 2013's Godzilla, was going to be Write, like writing or actually no, he was going to be directing it I think it was written by someone else he was just directing the script but he was mm-hmm. d- going to be directing it he wanted it to be shot like a war film um, and that was it and for me when I heard this I have almost never been more excited about something because I am the biggest fan of the 2013 Godzilla like I swear to god it's like a top like 1020 movie from last decade
1: it is so good yeah i don't think there's anyone that liked godzilla as much as you literally in the world yeah no 2013 version so okay again like i was also biased to how i
0: saw this film because the first time i saw godzilla i saw it in france in french without subtitles So it was purely the visual experience of seeing Godzilla, and it was like, this is a great film, and it's so masterfully told visually that I don't even need to worry about like the fact that there's no subtitles.
1: And that just sold me on Gareth Edwards as a director so hard. Did Godzilla Roars sound the same in French, or was he Frenchified?
0: Yeah, it was.
1: It... Oh, that's okay. about Chewbacca.
0: It was the same, but Brian Cranston's French dub like sounded nothing like Brian Cranston. It was like kind of high pitched and weird. I don't know. That, that so, makes sense. The best part was there were trailers for other movies in front of this trailer, and there were like two or three movies that had Samuel L. Jackson in them for some reason. It was like a weird amount of Samuel, <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson, and it was the same voice dub. So, so there's like some guy <laughs> in France who is just Samuel L. Jackson's French voice actor. I don't know. It's funny.
1: Makes it the same. There are a couple of famous (laughs) dub actors. He's like, oh, that's Homer Simpson. Oh, and Goku from Dragon Ball Z. Oh, and (laughs) that's really weird.
0: (laughs) Yep. So, anyway, that is why. Okay. So, I went into this movie's production and being like, okay, cool. This is like the coolest thing. It's going to be an actual, like, on the ground war film. Edwards is an amazing stylist. Some of that stuff came out, especially with the first trailer, with like how gorgeous the visuals were. And I'm like, cool. I am sold on this movie. I am so excited. Um, but what ended up happening was a little weird so they shot this movie they basically finished it there were reports that came out from the set after the fact like years after that gareth edwards was kind of shooting it like an indie film which godzilla was kind of shot like an indie film Mm -hmm. if you notice godzilla godzilla is actually a pretty cheap film to make there's effects but A lot of the effects are digital extension set extensions until the last like 30 minutes. You don't see Godzilla. He really saves all of his money and attention for the last like set piece. So, like, he knows how to work on a budget and he knows how to like work with constraints and stuff. But he also like does a lot of stuff on his sets where he like gets pickup shots. So, like, he'll like go get some like waving wheat in the corner or something or like focus on something so he has like an interesting angle. So it looks different and is good-looking and, and narratively interesting and so he was wasting a lot of time on set like getting other things that like weren't necessarily in the script or just like were things that were going to require other effect shots and just like it was a little weird and hard um and he also wasn't as good apparently at cutting dailies together so when you're shooting a film usually at the end of the day you kind of get all the takes and put together kind of a rough cut or or rough versions of each scene that that you like and just that wasn't good apparently they showed it to the disney execs and they got scared and they brought in director tony gilroy of uh, he wrote the borns he directed michael clayton and he did reshoots
1: yeah apparently he had apparently he had like an uncredited writer credit already like he was involved at a certain level in rogue one and he did some reshoots But I think when you were talking, it reminded me a couple of weeks ago in our first AUA, we had a question around how does our fandom around all of these broader entertainment thing affect how we enjoy certain pieces of content? And I think this Mm -hmm. was such a cool example from both of us of me first saying like how Diego Luna being there and being from Mexico was like very important. Yeah. And for you, how, you know, being excited about him because of Godzilla. And like, if somebody asks you today, like, well... Do you know that all of these shots that he did are not there anymore? And you probably don't, but just that story and you being excited and then changing the doctor affected us at some level, how we enjoy the content, which I just think is interesting because it happens, of course, with everything in life. It is interesting. And this actually played out
0: pretty publicly, too, with the the switchover and everything. Uh, It seems that the situation was a lot more dire on set than that got out, but... They dropped a trailer for Rogue One that was like gorgeous and interesting and had like a lot of scenes, like scenes that just didn't end up in the movie that were memorable from the trailer. Like there's this one where she where she turns uh, around. Jo- yeah, well, she turns around and like she's in like Imperial spy garb and it looks mm-hmm. really cool and like the lights fan out. There's one where like a TIE fighter is like accosting her on a tower. There's one where she's giving this monologue how about how like rebellions are built on hope and it's like the corniest thing in the world and it's not in the final movie. So there's like lots
1: of footage out there. Yeah, there are a couple of, of things of them running with the disc in the beach where I think at the end didn't happen. They just take it yeah. up. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, I think it, it goes back. It just shows we're talking in the first episode of how by Disney treated this piece of content star wars in general as this kind of a magical gem that they had to protect and yeah. you know polish every day and they tried they over polished we had again this quote in last yeah. episode that george lucas said that what he didn't like about the force awakens was that it was way too similar to the original star wars and that's literally what disney was trying to do because they didn't want to stray too far apart yeah. so just showing up again how micromanaged everything about this was
0: yeah and it, it sounds like the, a lot of the rumors around uh, what happened with edwards was essentially they didn't like what he d- had done um to be able to so directors are perfect, protected by the director's guild of america or the dga and there's all sorts of rules about who directs what and who gets credit for what and everything essentially you have to direct like 70 percent of the film and be present and like in command of the set for most of it and there's all sorts of rules but uh, so Gilroy came out, came in and and shot like under 30% of it and reshot it and didn't want to take credit. And essentially the deal Disney gave Edwards was like, you get to keep the movie and keep credit and you have to show up to set and like be there, but we're going to make like, we're going to give the camera over to Gilroy and he's going to actually do this, which is crazy. Again, that's pretty unfounded, but I've read and seen that on multiple sources. Uh, But reshoots aren't inherently bad. Reshoots happen all the time. Like, most big-budget movies have reshoots because there are things that don't work with effects or there are plot lines that they realize that, like, need to be teased out. It's so hard to get a sense of what the film is without editing it together. And with these big, 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 big films, it's so hard to, like, actually have rough, rough cuts and effect shots and everything. Like, this is not necessarily a death knell for a film if it goes into reshoots.
1: Yeah, and I think the, the the other kind of big change that happened was around um, the music. So yep. um, Desplat, who did Michael Desplat, what is his first name?
0: It's Alexandre It's
1: Desplat. I don't know why Maxi, who also worked with Garth- <laughs> Edwards on Godzilla, which I guess Great you score. heard the original the original version in French. The, um, yes, I I heard it <laughs> in a. Uh,
0: Displa's native language yes okay, I, I perfect that's what i wanted to go see the
1: the Displace cut of the film so that's why exactly. i went to france to see it exactly that makes sense <laughs> and uh they brought uh, michael giacchino from uh, pixar fame i guess most of his stuff yeah. he's very famous it's, from like inside out and up and like yeah. a lot of animated movies and apparently he had four weeks to compose the full score and soundtrack for a, a Star Wars movie, which seems ridiculous, especially because, correct me if I'm wrong, he got tasked to be the first composer to compose a Star Wars movie that wasn't John Williams. Yes,
0: he did. Which, which it seems was, to be... It was a pretty big deal when Desplat got it um, in like the scoring community, because Desplat's great. I, I adore Desplat. I first really discovered Desplat with... Um, kind of Benjamin Button and uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1, which like, Despawn's scores are beautiful and, like, whimsical and very different than kind of the Zimmer approach, but also the Giacchino approach. Like, he is a little bit more atonal. He doesn't necessarily have themes. Um, Whereas John Williams is the king of leitmotifs and big, big themes. And Giacchino is close to that. Like, I'd argue that Giochino is as good at, as Williams at coming up with iconic themes. I think the difference, though, is that he's good at, like, coming up with
1: one good theme a movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, all like, of his movies have, like, very specific, like, almost jingles or notes that you recognize. Right, exactly.
0: Like, Ratatouille, Incredibles, up, Star Trek all have incredible scores with great themes, but he has, like, one theme in there, whereas Williams has many. So, like, I thought it was good for them to zag and to display and, like, like, somebody else, like, do that. Um But Giacchino comes on. He does it in four and a half weeks. I, like, I have a good ear for scores and truly do not remember anything. And I know Giacchino is a great composer, but it's a really weak score to me. Yeah,
1: I mean, seems an and impossible task to... <laughs>
0: it's also an impossible task because, like, it, it's very clear by how the score turns out that... Disney really wanted it to sound like a Star Wars score. So it's just like I don't know. Like sometimes it's just like Star Wars themes, except like a note moves in a different direction. It's like that's weird. It's not as bad as solo score, which does that I think even more strangely. But yeah. That's the big move. Everything else is fine. Um it it got good reception. Like it it did very well at the box office. Um, the, really the biggest criticism was around special effects because that's when Disney was really exploring the digital characters or like de-aging effects that they ultimately kind of, I think very much succeeded with in Avengers Endgame, mm-hmm. but they did it by resurrecting Peter Cushing mm-hmm. from a horror movie and A New Hope fame. And I don't know, how do you feel about the the Peter Cushing model in that movie, Aton?
1: Yeah, it's a little stark. <laughs> I think you can tell it's kind of the first couple of uh, yeah. tries that they have. He plays um, Commander... Ugh. What's his name?
0: Um, It's uh, Grand Moth Tarkin.
1: Right, Grand Moth Tarkin, who is kind of, yeah, the big body from uh, New Hope. So because yeah. of, I guess, uh, continuity, it made sense to kind of bring out a simil- familiar face Yeah, I think in general, you know, I'm I'm of the sense that you should, again, not assume people and, or the audiences are naive and be like, yeah, there is another actor. He was 10 years younger. It's okay. No. Like, people are going to connect it. Um, what but I think, yeah. again, because this acts within not only the general umbrella of Star Wars, but because of Disney, it's like, well, we have this technology. and We're going to use it somewhere. It seems like, a, you know, we should try it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think it was a weird choice, especially how they de-
0: deploy it. Like, I think the character, it doesn't need to necessarily be there. Like, it doesn't bother me that much. It is a bit jarring, but I am able to suspend disbelief because it's a movie with space wizards, or actually only space priests, but um, <laughs> it's it doesn't bother me. But, like, I think something, like, you could accomplish the same narrative thing, like at the end of the movie have, like, an Imperial shuttle come down, and in the distance you can kind of see the... Like, Peter Cushing's got a very recognizable, like, head and mm-hmm. hair in that film. Like, mm-hmm. do it from a distance so you're not scrutinizing the character. Just be, like, him coming down through Watch a bunch of stormtroopers to take command. That works. Or at the end, there's also a Carrie Fisher model with um, Princess Leia. And, I like, it ends with her saying hope. And, like, then it kind of connects to the next movie. I think it would be so much more powerful if, like, the movie ended instead on, like, in the relay race of getting this disc into the ship, she is the final step of the relay as she should be, but she never turns around. And the final shot is her like putting in an R2-D2. Like, I think that's
1: yeah, a more
0: powerful and easier shot that doesn't look really bad on screen. The, yeah. the Leia model looks really bad to me.
1: <laughs> I agree. And everyone knows it's her.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like I just, yeah, I, I think it's like so iconic. Like it's just, there are ways to get around using this thing that wasn't quite ready, but I understand why they wanted to test it, and might as well test it on a lesser Star Wars movie in their minds.
1: Right. Um, I guess just before closing uh, Rogue One and moving to the next one, it did pretty well financially as well. It crossed $1 billion. It apparently was the highest grossing in the US in 2016. It's still to this day the 13th biggest domestic haul of all time, which is incredible. Uh, yeah. didn't expect that. Uh, it's It has the 86th international box office, but the 36th worldwide. So it did significantly better in the US than, than outside of it. It did. Which, which is... just speaks to... we spoke
0: We talked about this in our last Star Wars episode. This speaks to how popular Star Wars is domestically, but not necessarily internationally. Especially something like this, where it's not even tied to main franchise. I think this was just... A little
1: too far for international audiences. I mean, it still did well. Right. And apparently Carl mentioned it, you mentioned it's it was incredibly expensive to do with the effects and the reshoots. And apparently on a one billion dollar uh box office, it only did like three hundred, three hundred and fifteen profit. Yeah. Only. It was still the third most profitable movie of twenty sixteen, even with those numbers. Um and i would just close it out by saying that apparently george lucas enjoyed it more than the force awakens and you say that i agree with good old george
0: yeah i mean i
1: <sighs> it's okay the force it's okay. awakens you you, it's fine okay. for you it's
0: okay. the force <laughs> awakens is more fun i think i probably do think rogue one's a better movie i need
1: to rewatch rogue one let's be honest let's I, i'll rewatch it we um, should rewatch it together and we'll record our reactions it doesn't have to be a podcast i just want to hear you life okay. and be able to say did you see that you're so good
0: I mean we could do it and just record it and we could do a commentary that's
1: fun I don't that's know great. so good
0: <sighs> so yeah let's close out on Rogue One by all accounts this was a very successful film Disney was very happy with it they could have been happier if it had come out perfectly and they didn't have to retool it but <laughs> it was good and Etan loves it Eton loves it and a lot of people loved it it did very well for itself But then things started going south. So on September 5th, 2017, Lucasfilm announced that Colin Trevorrow, who had been announced as the writer and director of episode nine, was leaving episode nine following creative differences. So apparently the working relationship with Kathleen Kennedy had
1: become unmanageable because he didn't deliver a script that they liked. This is so funny because it's (laughs) it's one of the places in media where Creative Differences actually has a name. And that name is The Book of Henry. (laughs) (laughs) Creative Differences. Have you seen The Book of Henry? I haven't seen The Book of Henry.
0: It's worth watching The book, Book of Henry. It's like... It's less insane, but more pleasant to sit through than Cats, but it's like Cats levels of, like, just ridiculous. I... There's an entire episode on Book of Henry we could do Just explaining the plot of Booker of Henry is a wild ride. It is crazy. There are bad twists. It is the most melodramatic thing I've seen. It's a really, really bad movie. And Colin Trevorrow, like, loved it. Like, he made this movie. He defended it. Everyone else was like, no,
1: this is just a bad movie. Like, I, I see what you're trying to say here, but it's not working for me. And I guess the, the context we should give is uh, that Creative Differences, it's named The Book of Henry because Trevorrow did uh, probably Safety Not Guaranteed. It's his most famous kind of yeah. indie-ish film. And then he got very famously tapped to do the Jurassic World reboot mm-hmm. when he was announced to do uh, episode nine. And then I guess he took all of the good karma that he had to do exactly what he wanted to do. And he did the Book of Henry. And it made four point six million on a ten million dollar budget.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, Trevor was fine. Like he made Jurassic Actually he did direct... he directed Jurassic World two, didn't he?
1: No, he directed what one. He's a writer. He directed of two.
0: one and he's coming back to three. That's that's it, Correct. I think. Yeah, for okay. the menu. Yeah. Yeah. But he worked on two because he was working on, on this one. Uh he is gonna be fine it was interesting because he was whenever spielberg was trying to figure out who to take under his wing for jurassic world Brad bird came up Bradbird bird always comes up and brad bird just famously doesn't like want to do some of these larger properties wants to do his own thing so bird had seen safety not guaranteed recommended him to spielberg spielberg loved him he recommended him to kathleen kennedy and then it wasn't quite working. And then Book of Henry came out, and it was bad. So anyway, this guy gets fired. Then people are realizing, oh wow, this isn't like something's going on with Disney that they fired two. They fired one person and took a movie away from another
1: person. And uh, you know, for Rogue One, people were like, well, it's a standalone film. But for Episode Nine, they were like, wait. This is a trilogy. It's supposed to be very well planned. They announced JJ Abrams two for one, Ryan Johnson yeah. for two well, for seven, Ryan Johnson for eight, Trevor for nine, and then suddenly taking someone away like that, it it has a bigger impact because suddenly it becomes like, well, what is gonna what is gonna happen, right? This wasn't he writing the script for nine? Is it now gonna be connected to eight? Is it does it have something to do with eight that by that time had was probably in post production? Like kind of what, what is going on?
0: It's really interesting because I think the picture Disney tried to paint was that all these directors were collaborating. Like they directly said early on that Ryan, when they announced in 2014, that he was going to write and direct episode eight, was also going to write a treatment for nine. And then when uh, when Trevorrow came on, they were talking about how they were connected. And uh, in December 2015, Kathleen Kennedy actually said, we haven't mapped out every single detail of the sequel trilogy yet. But that Abrams was collaborating with Ryan Johnson, and Johnson would then work with Trevorrow to ensure a smooth transition. They also have a, a from story group that kind of helps try and map out all the, like, large-scale stuff with between the movies and also TV and everything. So they It seemed like there was some accountability there. But ultimately... I would love to hear what happened because what happened next I don't think anybody really guessed. So Ryan Johnson like I said was announced 2014 to write and direct episode 8. So if there's a movie I love more that nobody else loves than Godzilla, it's Looper because <laughs> I remember seeing Looper in 2012 and being like this is the coolest movie I've ever seen. Who is this guy? Breaking Bad like more seasons of that came out, and I was like, Ozzy Mand- Mandias is like the coolest directed episode of TV I've ever seen. This guy Ryan's going places, and then like mm-hmm. immediately after that, they announced to me that he's going to direct a Star Wars movie. I was like, Cool, I don't care about JJ Abrams, I care about Ryan Johnson. This guy's and, awesome. And I
1: just want to note Carl is wearing right now a sweater that says directed by Ryan Johnson in the Star Wars kind of font, so he, yes. he means this from the bottom yeah. of his heart. I
0: love ryan johnson he is one of my absolute favorite directors just he's a tremendous stylist with his like and how he does things i love how his characters talk like he's an interesting guy so i was all in on this movie and basically after i saw rogue one i was like i have to temper my expectations so much this movie's not going to be what i wanted then i go in And, like, the movie was everything I wanted and more. Like, it was, to me, the perfect Star Wars movie. I was, I've never been, like, happier as an adult than I was probably, like, seeing that for the first time. I also saw it at my favorite indie theater in Dallas, the Texas Theater, in, like, an auditorium with, like, a thousand people on an old screen. I got, like, a poster at it. It was, like, great.
1: So, I don't know. I just had a magical time seeing this movie. (laughs) i also remember where i watched it which is uh very funny i watched it at the oh, what are the name of these theaters in la light something Ar- arc light light yeah i watched it at yeah. the Art light in santa monica i remember being it was one of the not only really star wars movies but movies in general where my jaw dropped because of the visuals kind of the most, mm-hmm. and that I came out talking with the people that I went to see it and being like, oh, and this part, oh, and this part, oh, and this part from the opening I love the opening sequence with Oscar Isaac, Poe Dameron kind of playing with a huge ship and, you know, making a joke of, and, like, visually how all of that looks and the X-Wing going next to the the ship of course uh, the Captain Holdo turning around and mm-hmm. blasting the ship into hyperspace and the, like music going to silence when it happened and just yeah. visually the light against the backdrop and just the silence of, Oh my God, it captured like so much of the emotions with a lot of different uh, scenes. And I should say as a side note, because I don't know if we've talked about this publicly, but the first time Carl and I had an in-depth conversation, uh, we were seeing a hagen in Shanghai. we talked about this. And of course we ended up talking about The Last Jedi and I remember me telling Carl, like, this scene when Captain Holder turns around and blasts in hyperspace, you know, it shows it from different perspectives and the light and the sound. You just, and, <laughs> and Carl just looks at me and he's, like, squint, like smiling a little bit as I talk. And then when I finish, he takes out his phone, he turns on the wallpaper and he's like, do you mean this scene? <laughs> Like he was just waiting, like savoring me talk about it. He's like, "Oh, let me show it." Do I know what he's talking about? He doesn't know who's he talking with. He <laughs> <It> was just <laughs> every time I see that scene now, I think I think about that. Um, I'm but a I, dick, I, yeah, I, I do I do remember kind of how much I enjoyed it. Oh, the the crate battle with the with the mm, white yeah. and the red underneath is just beautiful. It's Earlier when you
0: were talking about like the thirty minutes of Star Wars that you rewatch, for me. I rewatch essentially when Rey goes and like faces her fears in like the force area on Ahch-To mm-hmm. and immediately then talks to Kylo Ren and like things go to basically you go from that until like Holdo like sacrificing herself like that's the 30 minutes for me because like everything I love about that movie is in there like essentially the movie for me I have this huge metatextual read on Star Wars that um, the sequel trilogy is kind of about how hard it is to make a, a Star Wars movie. Because <laughs> it's like you as a director who, if you're a Gen X director or even a millennial director, you grew up with Star Wars and therefore the act of making it is kind of like this insane thing. Thing of you trying to live up to the legend of george lucas and to the legacy that is bestowed upon you that's exactly what ray is trying to do is trying to be as good as luke skywalker like ryan johnson is trying to be as good as uh as george lucas and i think obviously jj abrams gave him the character groundwork to be able to do that and like that's what i think that those characters are and then ryan i think like doubles down on the uncertainty there and how hard it is to be these characters but ultimately just also that like doing something the same way just because somebody else did it will probably lead you on a path to ruin or a path to complacency rather than um, actually finding a solution to anything I don't know That's I love deep. it I, I, like I feel that. a lot from that film and just it is very special to me um, right so, much to my surprise, I was utterly shocked that people hated it.
1: <laughs> it was... Uh, people people hated it. And I think uh, we should probably say the hardcore fans hated it.
0: Yeah, which I don't know what the hell a hardcore fan is. Like, I went through a period of my life where I like probably only read extended universe novels for a year when I was like nine.
1: Like... Well, I, I love I can, Star Wars. I have a good metaphor for how I think about hardcore fans from Star Wars. When I think of yeah. hardcore fans about Star Wars, I feel about the same people in the U.S. that say we should follow the Constitution of the U.S. exactly as it was written and as it was thought exactly. in 1776. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? There was nothing in 17... It was nothing like we do right now. And if we looked at the world the way we look at it now based on that lens, it we would live in horses and... Do whatever it is, and here is like the people that think that Star Wars should be exactly what it was when a new hope came, sa- came out, where well, it wasn't even a new hope; it was just Star Wars, and not being able to realize that things change and things evolve and things change meaning, and uh, like I, it feels like it boils down to Rand Johnson taking the step of saying the Force is not in a family; the Force is not no. something three people control. You don't have to be related to anyone to be able to be special. And in my opinion, and probably yours as well, completely broadening the scope of what Star Wars meant and the reach that it could have. And yeah. the power that an individual can have is not defined by who their parents are. That it's so much cooler than I agree. how many midi-chlorians you have in your blood or you're only good because your grandfather was Darth Vader or whatever.
0: I was already in love with the film before the final shot of like a random boy staring up at the stars and contemplating what's next and yeah like that scene just destroyed me i at stanford at the business school they have this thing called talk where like people get up and like talk about their um just give like a 30 minute talk about their life lives and share it with their classmates and it's usually pretty transformational and like special to people and I didn't have the chance to give one of these, but if I had, like, I think I was going to frame it around um, kind of like Star Wars at different points in my life, because to me, the most powerful and important scene in Star Wars is the binary sunset in A New Hope. When Luke Skywalker, you've met him 10 minutes ago, he stares up at the the twin sons of Tatooine setting and is just, like, kind of melancholy about the fact that, like, He doesn't know what his future is but what his present is isn't what he wants and i think that's like what star wars is about and the last jedi has like four of those shots like star wars is about like this longing for something more and knowing that you're you can do great things but also ryan's vision gives it like the neurotic edge of being kind of like deeply afraid that you can't live up to that i don't know i think it's so powerful
1: it's also, I think, exactly connected to that. Is uh, this is getting too much into the plot and the, the fandom? But the other point that people probably didn't like was Luke Skywalker is painted in the first three movies as being this god and messiah, yeah. And people remember him as if he was perfect, which he yeah. absolutely wasn't <laughs> in those three movies. And the last Jedi, what he what he does, it says, "Look, it's not." Proud of a lot of things that he did, and he grew, and he's different, and he wants to teach someone what he learned. Which that they made him a character. No, no. <laughs> and and it also, when you rewatch the first two movies, he wasn't at all. He made all the mistakes. Yeah, he didn't agree and he didn't believe he's and a he whiny struggled. Brat, and, yeah, and that's the point for me. That's one of probably one of my favorite scenes in the last Jedi is when Ray sitting down and he looks like, you know, extend your arm. Feel the force. Can you feel it? And he's just playing with a plant in mm-hmm. her hand. She's like, "Yes, yes, I can feel it. Oh my god!" And he just came playing with her. That's how I feel oh. of Ryan Johnson playing with the Star Wars, whatever fans. <laughs> he's like, "Ooh, can you feel it? Ooh, that's the force. Ooh, ooh." Yeah, a, a lot of people
0: think that it is, the humor and it's corny, but I, I don't know. I the the thing for me about Star Wars is and the Star Wars fandom is what a lot of hardcore Star Wars fans fail to remember is that most of the Star Wars movies are kind of bad. (laughs) Like, A New New Hope's, like, revolutionary, but kind of boring. Empire's great. Empire's great. Return of the Jedi is, like, a bunch of toy sales, but, like, as a kid, you love it, and that's fine. Prequels are, like, the all the worst things about return of the Jedi boiled down into something with some bizarre, like cool metapolitics and like ritual infused in there. But like, ultimately those movies are all bad. Force awakens is like fun, but like a pastiche of, of better things. Rogue one so is amazing. Like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But I mean, like even then, like the majority of films are like whatever films, they're not great. They're not even like, like, But you can love the thing and love living in that universe and also recognize that, like, these things aren't perfect, like, immovable things. Like, I don't know. I think the greatest decision Lucas ever made was to, like, open up the world to other writers with the expanded universe and everything. And I think there's nothing wrong with doing that with the main franchise. Uh, I do just think it's interesting that there just wasn't direction and that somehow Ryan Johnson choosing to go his own way with things like through a wrench in this and this is like a broader conversation i argue with my fiance about all the time which is like do directors have a duty to make a film work within a franchise or can they do their own thing and like i look at films and franchises that i love like iron man 3 or batman forever like these things that thor people ragnarok like... see thor is exactly like rogue one for me thor ragnarok is good but it's not as good as it could be. It's got dumb action sequences. I don't know. I like like that Ryan just made his own thing. He is the only person who has written and directed a Star Wars movie like and has sole credit besides George Lucas. And Disney never tampered with it at all for some reason. And then somehow that ended up nuking their franchise publicly. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's crazy because it, it feels like it was the one time where this micromanagement didn't happen, hopefully. They let yeah. him run. They let him take different paths. They let him create or play with Snoke and say, "Snoke doesn't matter," and race, family doesn't matter, and take a, yeah. again, take a, take a different meaning and push it forward. And unfortunately, like you said, it seems like it was the worst thing that could happen because it just made Disney kind of reverse course and go even harder on kind of micromanaging and being extra careful and being kind of awful in the way that they run star Wars.
0: It, I mean, it drove both Daisy Ridley and Kelly Marie Tran off of social media, like kind of permanently because they were getting death threats or like harassed by people because just these fans just didn't like how quote progressive the movie was for having all these strong male, female characters. People hate that um, Poe gets put in his place by Laura Dern's General Holdo, even though like the point is that like the flyboy soldier doesn't have a place in like, something that's as serious as the fi- situation they're facing. Disney got a lot of criticisms from a lot of loud people that ultimately like really are insignificant and as as like the number of people actually watching these things. I think.
1: Yeah. And I think Rise of Skywalker like, proves that. Oh, absolutely. I think the other part, which for me, it's for me it's probably not, not the weakest, but it's the part that I care the least about, is the casino sequence. And probably I care the least about because I really like the Benicio del Toro character um, with his stutter. And yeah, I like thought he was too. coming back, and he didn't. So that, again, because of a lot of the decisions that they took after, that sequence... It's kind of flat. I really like where the character Finn was going. I really like where Rose was going and what it meant. And then it never got past that after the movie. So it was also a reaction to, oh, people didn't like the casino. So then let's dump on it by not making it feel even less important than it actually was. Anyway. But even that doesn't take away from how great everything else is. The thing that Ryan gets criticism
0: for even by John Boyega is that like Finn it's kind of like excised from like the main plot arc of the film and I think that's interesting and I think that's worth talking about but ultimately at the end of the day Finn isn't the main character of the film I think a lot of the disservice that That Finn and B.O.B.E. go have by being kind of pushed as like an accident, like an actually secondary character rather than a lead. Is that in The Force Awakens, Finn, it's all the marketing and everything was making you think Finn was going to be kind of like the lead and the Jedi Mm -hmm. and like this main character. And then it's a trick. And I think that's pretty much like ultimately when you're making a Star Wars movie and you have Rey as the main character, you can't. Just also make Finn a main character. I think his his plot arc around being like a, a stormtrooper that's like abused and has his memory erased and everything is really good and potent. But that's something that like Colin Trevorrow's episode nine script that never got made deals with. Like I, I I think he has the exact amount a like right amount of time on screen in Last Jedi and actually has a
1: much more interesting story. Yeah, there seems to be also fetish with people being like, well, they're never together, right? The three of them. Uh, yeah. Poe Dameron, Rey, and Finn. And then it's like, well, if you go back to Empire or anything, they're also yeah, not Empire. together. That's not, like, the story is not about the three of them being a unit. That's not, that's never what it was. The power of Empire is exactly that, is
0: that you have everyone kind of doing their own separate thing. The, the whole thing never makes sense. Like, it, it's a bunch of, like, plot hole gotchas and, and whatnot, but... Star Wars doesn't have to make sense. None of those ships could fly. Like, it's not real.
1: <laughs> Obviously, I care about There is no Wars, galaxy far, blood. far away. Chill, everyone. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Whatever. So, everyone's already turned off the podcast from us talking too much about Last Jedi. But this is seemingly a massive turning point in what happened with, with the Disney Star Wars. Where a company that is kind of at its peak with Pixar and marvel and everything and firing on every cylinder and like the greatest media company in the world at this time it's like wait the public general public isn't eating this up which the general public was like it has an a cinema score people liked this movie but like it was the first time that disney had had like a tainted media image since like the
1: thousands it had been a while yeah and especially because like you said they were very good at gobbling Goblin, gobbling, gobbing things up, whatever. And really put them seamlessly into whatever it is that they do well. And yeah. it it kind of showed how a lot of the things that they were doing with Star Wars kind of backfired. From micromanaging, from for sure. the timeline, for... Even though they were micromanaging, they lost the the trees for the forest. They lost the forest for the trees, sorry. And yeah. they were like, oh, I need to micromanage this specific thing. And they were like, well, you didn't plan the trilogy in advance, you're having issues because nobody, like, there was no plan. Yeah. No. And probably the biggest, the biggest example of that was the next movie.
0: Before we get to the next movie, I find this, okay, real quick, I find this is a trend that we have all the time is that one of us puts up a, like, lobs up a segue, and then the other, one the other person it. is just like, Okay, that's a great segue, but I want to say something else before we segue. It's fine. We are here for our thoughts, so please. (laughs) Yes, that is a great segue to Solo, but (laughs) before that, this is kind of a recurring theme in 2010's media, which is everyone wants to make the Marvel Cinematic Universe happen again and it is impossible. Mm -hmm. The Marvel Cinematic Universe was a fluke. It was a It was a bunch of Hail Mary passes by an almost bankrupt studio trying to make movies. Then it gets acquired by Disney. Then they make Avengers, and Avengers is this big thing. And then they have the ability to do everything. And this is all masterminded by one guy, Kevin Feige. Like, you have one person in charge. It's a completely accidental thing, and it's organic growth. Like, there's no way to growth hack your way into making the dark universe or the (laughs) DC Extended Universe, or yes, Star Wars work in the same way. Like, it's just not going to happen. People don't. Like, the MCU is an anomaly.
1: We We should do an episode and call it the MCU is an anomaly and talk about that. Yeah, I would love to. In a very MCU strategy... Disney
0: did hire Phil Lord and Chris Miller to make Solo a Star Wars story, which is the next film we want to talk about. Uh, Solo was intended to be Disney's first time trying multiple Star Wars films in a year, so it was slated to come out. I think it was actually supposed to come out before Last Jedi, and then it got pushed last after Last Jedi. Um, oh, wow. There were projects in... Works for years so Lawrence Kasdan is a name we should talk about for a second do you know who Ka- Lawrence Kasdan is
1: no okay did they based uh Cassio... what? now I'm his name mixes my wires with uh Diego Luna's character in row one uh, Casio Cass- <laughs> we... Nandar did they base his name on him I really don't <laughs> think so but we okay. could I could say yes if it would make you happy <laughs> <laughs> yes
0: yes please <laughs> Uh, So, he is a kind of 80s writer-director. He directed movies like The Big Chill and Body Heat. But he also wrote Empire Strikes Back. He worked on Return of the Jedi, Force Awakens, Raiders. So, he was kind of like a a Spielberg-Lucas guy there for a while. And then he came back and was like... He was brought in to be kind of the Lucas surrogate for Force Awakens. So he's the closest Disney has to a continuity of vision from the early Lucasfilm days. So the like, Dave Filoni would be someone kind of similar. So Filoni worked in late period Lucas post prequels and is now like doing a lot of The Mandalorian. But yeah, Lawrence just like had this air of like I was there for like the movie that everyone thinks is the good Star Wars movie, so like I'm going to work on this project and his son Jonathan also decided to help write this. But the development of Han Solo as a character from the first movie into Empire and beyond, like, Lawrence Kasdan basically created, like, what we think of as, like, the emotional arc of Han Solo. So Which is a great arc, he, arc. Good arc. Yeah. He was brought in to write this. He and his son wrote this. Lord and Miller came in, fresh off of the Lego movie and the Jump Street movies, and they're going to direct Star Wars, Solo a Star Wars movie. So when I tell you Phil Lord and Chris Mueller of the Lego movie fame are directing a Star Wars movie. What do you think this, the tone of that movie is going to be, Eitan?
1: Fast-paced, witty, humor-based.
0: Yeah, like, it's going to be a comedy, like, in yeah. some way. So, apparently, that's what Lord and Miller thought, too. But something that came out, like a few years after all this, was that Lucasfilm wanted it to be a standard Star Wars movie with a comedic touch? It's like, what does that even you, mean? Like, watch any of their movies; those guys are not capable of a touch of like. Com- it's all going to be like this ridiculous it's a punch meta, in the face. whatever. It's funny. It's great, yeah. but it's like you don't hire them to make like a kind of funny Star Wars movie. You make hire them to make like a massive thing. Yeah. And this ultimately bit them like they got fired from this project very publicly so this is the third time a director has been fired the second very publicly and yeah like they had shot so much of this movie they had shot like 70 percent of the movie and ron howard got hired on to finish it like and he
1: came in and directed read shot like 70 percent of it that's terrible yeah it's also one of those things where he's like okay they took a they went on a weird direction on purpose with Lord and Miller, and then they were like, "Eh, complete U-turn, who's the safest, absolute safest director we can go to, Ron Howard. Yeah. And this isn't, like, really big... This is
0: really contrasted with something like Thor Ragnarok, which, yeah, I just kind of nagged Thor Ragnarok a little bit, but it is pretty thoroughly a Taika Waititi film, and, like, you hire Taika Waititi to make that film. Like, you hire these guys... So I think ultimately this is kind of everyone's fault or nobody's fault. Early on, I was so sad when they got fired because this was something that sounded so fun and interesting. But if you dig into it, I just think it was a bad match. Like Kennedy and Kazdan disagreed with how they were shooting it because one, they were kind of shooting it like a comedy rather than like a, they were trying to do it fast and loose and creatively, which is bad for effects because you have to have like
1: people hit specific marks to make effects work. Yeah, apparently they had they allowed like improv and like they wanted people to riff and find their thing. Yeah,
0: they wanted people to riff and figure out what was going on. Which, again, why do you hire as they did hire? They hired Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller Bridge Mm -hmm. as two of the main stars of this, two of the greatest comedy writers of all time, at least of this generation. Yeah, they're in the cast, and you're not like. You don't want them to come up with things like Lawrence Kasdan didn't like it because they were deviating too much from his script. He actually came to set and babysat for a bit like, or that's at least what Lord and Miller called it. Ugh, yeah. um, the biggest thing I think was all ultimately who they cast around for Han Solo, Alden Arenreich, who I think I really like him and hail Caesar. I really like it. Him as an actor. I think he's very good in the ultimate yeah, solo project product. I think he's good, but it's like, Imagine being an actor and being hired and being like, "Yeah, you know the most charismatic, like, sexy performance, like, as agreed on by most people, in a movie, like, Han Harrison Ford as Han Solo in 1977." All right, we need you to be the young version of that. Go. Like he was having a lot of t- trouble improving in character. Uh he had an acting coach brought in and everything. People were like, Oh my god, is he just like not up to the task? I don't blame him. Like I think like that sounds like a nervous breakdown waiting to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also they like when you read the list of who the else they were considering, like uh Dave Franco and Ansel Elgort and Miles Taylor, he's far and away the one I see the most playing it. Yeah. But it's again, it's one of those things where uh, again, they're actors they get paid to do this, but the insecurity of trying to get into this and then get your directors changed and probably Ron Howard coming first day he told him forget everything you did with Lord and Miller this is how we're gonna do it (laughs) having to start from scratch
0: yeah you hired Ron Howard to make a okay movie like Ron Howard's a fine director I am not really struck by Howard's films in general as a young nerdy science kid who doesn't love Apollo 13 but ultimately I'm, I'm not too enamored with his films. You hire the guy, he can get the job done, it's gonna get made, it's gonna get done. And he did. And, like, I don't think it's a bad film. Like, I all of my problems with the film rely on the fact that it's a Han Solo film and just, like, it kind of has nothing to do with who Han Solo actually
1: is. Right, and we, we talked last week of the... is not only about how who Han Solo is, it's also a movie that it's so incredibly like forced mm-hmm. to be specific about explaining stuff to you about the Kyber Crystals and the Parsecs and the Millennium Falcon and exactly, exactly how it works and exactly, exactly how he got it where they just completely went overboard with both the fandom and not letting the people figure anything out and it, it, it like, feels way too prescripted. I don't know if that's the right way to say yeah. it. At, at times, like, I think
0: that this film is just secretly a way of Disney making up for the fact that at one point in A New Hope, that he, a New Hope, Han Solo says that he did the Kessel Run in less than mm-hmm. 12 parsecs, and people were like, oh, well, parsecs aren't a unit of time, they're a unit of distance. So they find a convoluted way to actually make that statement make sense. And they also um, let you know how he got the last name Solo, and got his trusty blaster, and met his friend Chewbacca. I don't mind the Chewbacca thing,
1: but like it's no, yeah, and it's... how he met uh, Donald Glover, uh... Lando Calrissian. Yes, Lando Calrissian, yeah. and how he, you know, people know that he won it on a, in a cards game, how he won it, and yeah, yeah, they seem they 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 try to answer all the, they yeah, they try to give all the answers in a very short amount of time. And you also learn such great
0: things as um, Han Solo doesn't trust people because his uh, girlfriend Kira let him down. Or the reason Lando likes Ammonium Falcon is because
1: he wants to marry it? I don't know. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) He Kinda. wants to marry the robot that was looking to start a robot uprising because they were slaves and then got uploaded into the machine. Yep.
0: You remove all the, like, it has to fill a franchise function and do X, Y, Z and just it's a space adventure and like as a heist and some others, it has multiple heists in it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun yeah. with it. It's just kind of whatever. Like, yeah.
1: It's just kind of Whatever. That's a good and that's uh, what, way to finish. So, <laughs> Just kind of whatever.
0: And that is exactly what audiences thought. It made $393 million on a $300 million budget. So it certainly didn't break even on its production budget and you added marketing. Like, this was a huge wash for Disney. Like,
1: <laughs> a huge uh, wash. I like that expression.
0: Honestly, like, what you... Based on what you said about Solo or uh, Rogue One, all the profits they made from Rogue One probably disappeared because of Solo. That's about like a one-to-one comparison. Like, they canceled each other out.
1: Damn it. Rogue One was is- <laughs> Why did
0: they waste it? <laughs> well, Disney thought they canceled out too because they put all of the uh, Star Wars stories anthology films on hold. Like, kind of immediately. Film dropped in May. By June 2018, they had announced that all projects were on hold. Nothing had been formally announced, but there were things around Stephen Daudry of um, He's the, the Hours and the Crown director. He was going to do an Obi-Wan movie, so I imagine that's gonna be, that would be very stately. I don't know what that film would be. James Mangold was going to be a Boba Fett movie. That sounds kind of dope.
1: I would see that. Yeah. Be Yoda the, movie. Well, yeah, the, uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi is now the Disney Plus show probably not going to be anything else in the movie right about that yeah i boba I fett know. probably as well now
0: it's as much as me ragging on the pre- prequels earlier ewan mcgregor as obi-wan especially in the latter two prequel films is the great performance of those films He's i'm great. excited to see whatever comes next
1: yeah and i think of obi-wan and i think of him not on yeah for sure Sorry, whoever played him in a new hope and alec guinness i'm sorry sir alec guinness (laughs) sir alec guinness named after (sighs) the beer of course uh (laughs) not not really i don't know go Um, go sit
0: down and watch some david lean films and get back to (laughs) me maybe okay disney disputed this put on hold thing in june 2018 but they did announce later that uh, Bob Iker actually said that Star Wars will go on a hiatus in 2019 after Rise of Skywalker. And I, I think this is smart. We'll get into it in the next episode. Star Wars definitely needs scarcity to work. It
1: absolutely does. I think also this week is a perfect time for scarcity of Star Wars because Mandalorian is coming out again on Friday. And I think people are really looking forward to it as a palette. Cal- pal cleanser after uh, the Rise of Skywalker which is now the first piece of content that comes out post that. You know what? I was really just kind of in a bad mood when I watched
0: Mandalorian last year. Like, I, I like Mandalorian and but just everyone was just blown away by it and I was like, yeah, this is fine. It's just like a little slow and, and whatever and then I saw Rise of Skywalker and then after that, I was like, I don't want to think about Star Wars. I'm just like done with Star Wars for now. But I am actually excited to sit down and watch the Mandalorian hang out with, I was going to say Baby Yoda, but I guess I'll call it The Child. The Child. And uh, Pedro Pascal on a costume. Cool. Sounds like a great weekend.
1: Yeah. We'll bring you, we'll bring you listener, our 10-minute um, review of the first episode next week. <sighs> that could just be the news. Oh, yeah. All right. So,
0: yeah, that's kind of where we're at with films. So, films just zigged and zagged and ultimately just went down with a a thud with Solo. And Disney's got a lot riding on The Rise of Skywalker. But even more important than The Rise of Skywalker, honestly, is what they have riding on Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland. eh,
1: Writing? Yeah, I said
0: riding. Wink. I I should have winked, winked, like, verbally <laughs> when I
1: was saying that. Yeah. Uh, we'll just touch on very briefly on this, but the, like Carl was mentioning with, as you can tell, the curve that Disney's expectations and management of Star Wars have, it was also kind of similar in the planning of Galaxy's Edge. So during these years, rumors came out of, like, the huge plans that they had for Galaxy's Edge, the first theme park, they announced the name that it was going to have, and... Everything you were going to be able to do, and it was going to be interactive, you were going to have a reputation, and if you interacted with somebody in a store, they would know if you were, like, for or against the Resistance, and it was going to be amazing. And then, as The Lord, uh, the Last Jedi, I was going to say The Lord of the Jedi, The Last Jedi and Solo came out, rumors started coming out that they were like, uh, maybe we should need to temper down a little bit, maybe we're investing way too much in the parks... Maybe we don't need three rides, maybe two is enough, maybe we don't need all of this interactivity, maybe we can raise prices just by having this and not that. And as we get closer and closer to the opening of Galaxy's Edge, things start to be not as rosy, not only with the movies, but also with the theme parks. And we... that was all I was going to say we can leave everything else for the next episode so
0: oh like let's let's actually get in, into some of this i think we've got time to get into it something that's interesting and obvious in hindsight and even at the time about galaxy's edge is that disney was using it to test a lot of digital and interaction features at disneyland and disney world as well so up until maybe a, a year before galaxy's edge came out The Disney app was fine, but they really did a lot around the Disney Parks app to beef it up and make it so you could see better ride times, kind of do everything you wanted to within the park as far as reservations or checking things or even playing games to pass the time. Like You could do that in the app. A lot of features around like tracking and just knowing who you are in the park. And that was all front and center of why they were doing Galaxy's Edge to really push these features to their their limit and make it so that the future of the park was future-proofed and also come up with novel ways of killing times or managing capacity without people being irritated about not being able to be in a
1: park. Right. And not only from the um, um, like theme park perspective, which I know is our fandom, but uh, I'm biased I, we're biased. We know how we feel about Disney, but I think the Disney parks app, I'm mostly familiar with the Disneyland, not with Disney world. Is probably one of the best examples of a digital app enhancing a physical experience in the world that I've mm-hmm. seen. I haven't seen anything like it. it because people think about it in you know the lines, but everything you can do there and how it works and how we go- good it works. It connects to the photos, you can order food, you can interact with things in Galaxy Edge, it gives you information, pop-ups, notifications, it has QR codes, It's it's very good. Sorry, that's a tangent. But yes, they were investing in it in in Galaxy's Edge. And kind of the the big thing, of course, was this thing that I touched on briefly around the reputation, which is it was announced... It was announced. People saw online because people in the Disney internet are crazy, and I'll get back to that, (laughs) that there was going to be this thing where you you were either going to be for the Resistance or for the First Order. And basically, all of your experience within Galaxy's Edge was going to depend on that. From how people treated you in a store and the type of food that you got served to literally the the, theme, the ride experience that you would have in a ride. If you were in the Millennium Falcon you were for the First Order, something different would happen. Mm. And the way the cast members would interact with you would be different. And if Kylo Ren was walking, he would walk to you because you were for the First Order and not to somebody else. And they were really thinking about how do we take this to the next level? And that was kind of it. And I guess the... <laughs> If you put together... How do people know about this? Theme Park Internet and Star Wars Internet are probably two of the most intense internets out yeah. there. And when you combine them, if you search like Galaxy's Edge progress on Google, people track down government requests, aerial mm-hmm. photos, blueprints. People knew exactly what was happening when they put something, when they put the at AT ads, or however you say them. In a game where the Millennium Falcon appeared, when the Eggwing appeared, when they put one extra bush to the right where it was only supposed to be one, people (sighs) knew about this. So it was incredibly public of how things were happening. And it was kind of the first land that got built under this umbrella of scrutiny because of how things got. So we kind of know everything that Disney had planned which is a little bit in stark contrast to what end up opening, which we're not there right. yet. It hasn't opened in our timeline.
0: The, one of the things that we both love about Disney is the fact that there's so much to discover around, especially Disneyland or Magic Kingdom. All of these things, different areas that are themed have different things to discover and they have different performance groups and like there's a band that will play on one corner at this time of day or there's just so much life and it feels like it's this evolving ecosystem all day of just stuff to do like like a real community and star wars was going to have that, except with like performers on stilts or in makeup or with robots or actually having like a lightsaber battle or something in the on like a side corner like it was Going to incentivize you to want to stick around that area. And then ultimately, what you get is an area that's
1: really easy to do in like an hour and then leave. So, and yeah, I think only e- even worse is that the things that they ended up keeping, like the cantina or uh, Savvy's workshop, which is where you build the lightsaber, or no. the droid depot where you build the droid, end up being things that you get op charts for. Yeah. Uh, we talked about Disney, how they are the masters of upcharge, they kind of end up taking things away that we're going to be there forever and just making you pay for. We've been to the cantina, I think we both think it's amazing but having to pay, like, how much are the lightsabers? 200 bucks? Something yeah. ridiculous? I we, Apparently it's great, but 200 bucks or 100 bucks for the andro- for the droid? It, yeah, it, it the things that you can do for free, let's say, are... Uh, limited uh, and yeah the, the cantina
0: is cool like the theme is great the drinks are decent but at the end of the day the theme the cantina is like it's this insane logistical process to get a reservation there like it's so mm-hmm. hard
1: to get a table there
0: thank and you for Car- getting at the time we've been
1: <laughs> i was gonna say carl and i are big fans of logistical nightmares and problems yeah, so of course just, we got a reservation exactly at the time that we wanted one. but you know like there's some cognitive dissonance for me
0: between like you know, wanting to go get a drink at a cantina and then the process for doing this is not like going and stopping and getting a drink and pulling up a chair and like just hanging out. Instead, it's you get in a line at a certain time that goes into a hidden door and you go through and you're seated at a spot that you don't get to choose with people you don't get to know and you have time enough for exactly two drinks and that's all you get. And if you don't finish your second drink in time, you get kicked out. Like, it's so regimented
1: that it's like kind of defeats the fun of it almost. I, I don't think almost. I think like, it does. I don't think there, I've been back because of that. Like it feels like a novelty yeah. thing that I would want to show someone, but it, it probably won't be. It's not part of it. Right now you can't go. It wouldn't be part of my rotation, let's say. There I is would no rather reason... be sitting in Light Lounge having drinks for four exactly. hours. I exactly. Mean, I'm <laughs> not going to go there to hang out because it's impossible to go there to hang out, which is the point of a bar.
0: Yeah, I, and there's also no reason that it should be that capacity limited. Uh, limited, it's it could fit maybe like a hundred patrons inside. I don't know how many. Like, it's pretty small, it's super small. It should be the size. It should be the size of like be our guest in Magic Kingdom or something where mm-hmm. it can hold like 500 people. Like, you can make it feel intimate and fun, and it would hit capacity still. Like, I think people would still go. Especially if there was like a food option, which they killed a lot of the. They killed any sort of restaurant option except for grab and go food.
1: Supposedly, there was a uh, there was gonna be this crazy theater and performance center oh. right behind it, and uh, apparently it was too costly. One of the reasons why because they needed to get uh, cast members that were part of like the I think they call like variety actors association mm. and union, and they didn't want to deal with that. So they took an Excel spreadsheet and they were like, we're able to get the same benefits from having the cantina and having the scarcity of people wanting to go there that actually having this awesome theater thing. This is more than good enough. This micromanage the crap out of this. If we can get the same with the least amount, which is again, super anti Disney Disney is go all in. You're going to smell main street USA and there's going to be a specific sound and a specific whatever, and this is a little bit not exactly like that. It looks great. Like, Galaxy's Edge looks very nice, but the experience is uh, lacking. Agreed.
0: So, this is where we're ending this second installment of this trilogy. We're at kind of a down note. Galaxy's Edge hasn't come out yet, but you can see what we end up thinking about it, because we just talked about it for ten minutes. Uh, (laughs) The films are kind of not hitting in the way that they should and star wars is kind of on the rocks and next episode about star wars that we do i guess you'll get to see whether it ends up being a, a prequel trilogy and ending on a down note or a uh, another trilogy and ending on an up note spoilers it ends on a kind of down note
1: yeah it's definitely a revenge of the Seth. yeah if you've known yeah. if you've seen sorry rise of skywalker
0: mm, that's great but just like Revenge of the Sith it does end on a note of hope <laughs> so
1: we'll, we'll hopefully we'll see you there I have a question for you a very quick AUA to close us out great you're a big Ryan Johnson fan yeah he was amazing in Star Wars he was amazing in Knives Out so creating something completely original uh-huh. if you were going to give Ryan Johnson a piece of IP to play with either major or Employee. very small or very small just something that already exists and you're going to tell him to go play with it what would it be and why? And again, Carl hasn't, he doesn't know this question. So let's yeah, see what I he. I actually truly can come don't know with. what the answer to this one is. Um, give me a second. Listener, you'll never know how much time we cut here. It could have been 30 yeah. seconds, it could have been 15 We're minutes.
0: We're cutting so much time here. Dude, I don't
1: know even know IP
0: off the top of my head.
1: Um,. Just what would you want him to do, and yeah. then see if it's even related. Relate that, whatever connected to something—a book, remake a movie, give him a who it in the way uh, Jane Austen film. Well, he won't take it, but it doesn't have to be things he would take.
0: So, I have been watching a lot of Oliver Stone lately. I watched JFK the other day. I watched uh, Born on the Fourth of July. So I'm really in like a paranoid thrillers. Phase right now. And I think Ryan Johnson, as a student of genre, would absolutely kill like a 70s paranoid thriller, something like The Conversation or All the President's Men, uh, the Post to a much lesser extent, but like something like that where it's just like working in that vibe. Like the Post is like trying to fit in that vibe, but Zodiac as well. I think he would make a great like paranoid investigative thriller and all of his films have been genre pastiches in some way whether it's sci-fi or uh con men or like a Dashiell hamlet hamlet novel or whatever and i would just love to see him do something like that so i don't have an, a specific answer and i think that's partially because i think he would be great in any genre he really wants to work in but i that's the genre i want to see ryan tackle next
1: Ryan, if you ever listen to this and you know what you're doing next and you want to, you know, reach out and let us know, our tweet direct messages are always open.
0: (laughs) I have a much more basic AUA question for you.
1: Oh, go for it.
0: What Star Wars ship would you want to own? Like, if you could have one of the, if you lived in the Star Wars universe and had one that you could fly, what would you want to own?
1: I think the Millennium Falcon is such a cop-out answer, so I won't do That's that. Fine. No, 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 no. Oh, I think I would like. No, wait, I don't know how they're called. What is the name of the <laughs> from the the bad ones that have the circle and the things? The tie. It's not fighter. the X-wing. Tie fighters. Okay. I would like to have a tie fighter. It belongs to the to the bad guys, but that sound is so incredibly uh, like specific and nostalgic to me. Uh, they're terrible; they get blown out very easily. Apparently, no one knows how to drive them, but they sound cool. They nobody knows how to drive drive them because they are
0: like really quick and nimble. They they look really cool when they fly.
1: Tie fighter. There we go. What version? Don't ask me. I don't know. Tie fighter. <laughs>
0: For me, it would be the uh, Naboo Starfighter, the yellow ones from Phantom Menace. You went prequels. I mean, the prequels don't lack in good design sometimes. Those things are gorgeous. They're like supercars. They're cool. Beautiful. And I mean, it makes sense because they are uh, Naboo escort ships. They're not designed for actual space space fights.
1: So nice. So peaceful (laughs) of you. Maybe that's why you don't like Rogue One because you don't like war. Yeah, I just like people
0: like, talking about their feelings and having very dramatic battles about it.
1: You would like it more if it was called Star Peace Treaties more than Star Wars, I guess.
0: That was a terrible joke, but
1: I'll give it to you. <laughs> On that terrible joke note, let's end. Yeah, we're obviously this losing episode. energy, so. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to this second installment of Star Wars trilogy, the trilogy, the episode. I don't know how we're calling it. Next one should be available in the next four to six weeks please reach out to us on twitter if you have any questions any suggestions we love interacting with everyone and just thank you for listening please remember to rate review and subscribe have a great night